Good day, everyone, and welcome back to episode 49 of the Satchel and Adam Show. We're getting close to having a beer for our 50th yeah, episode, um, and I can't think of a better way to have our 49th episode than with Harry Guinness, who Adam will introduce. Yeah, cool. So we've got a really interesting guest today. Lately, a lot of our guests have been entrepreneurs, people that work in finance, um, but we've got someone a bit different today, someone who's been involved in politics and policy for a lot of his life. So Harry Guinness actually started a think tank called the Blueprint Institute. Um, and so think tanks, they normally hold sort of debate and do a lot of writing about reform and about different types of policies. And before that, he was a foreign policy advisor to Julie Bishop. Um, and then he also worked in the Attorney General's Department on countering violent extremism, which are all really, really big roles. And he was educated at the University of Oxford doing development studies, which is something I'm sure you'd throw off Sachin. Um, also did economics and arts at ANU. And then a bit of a fun fact, Harry was actually in the Brumbies squad uh, once upon a time and played a game for them. So welcome onto the show, Harry. And um, thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks both of you for the, the very warm introduction. I'm looking forward to the, the conversation today. Yeah, you've done it all. And Adam and I have actually spent some time in the last few days reading some of the papers of the Blueprint Institute. Really so good papers. Really excited to dive into them. But in true 2021 Sachin and Adam show style, I have to ask you before we can get into that stuff, um, is there any story or significant event you can think of that has kind of informed the person you are today? Yeah, I mean, um, it's, a, it's a kind of a big question, right? Like you, you get a bit vexed about presenting one story that's meant to encapsulate everything about your character and your personality and, and who you are as a person. Yes. So um, uh, it, it's kind of a tough one, but uh, one, one, one kind of random story or, or memory came to mind. And that's um, an early one of uh, what I was like at primary school. And I feel in many ways, um, you know, it, it, it captures um, two things that I'm very passionate about. And, and that is um, playing sport in the schoolyard um, as a kid. Uh, I've got really distinct memories. And whether or not they're true is another story, but I've got distinct memories of being a real leader in the schoolyard in like year three, where every recess and every lunch, everyone would get together and discuss about what sport we'd play. And my memory of it is that I was like, really involved in the strategy of like what sport we should play in the decision making around who should be on which team and crucially in ensuring that there was like complete fairness across the teams and if there wasn't then we'd like shuffle things to ensure that that things were fair and the additional thing is i always remember wanting to be on the slightly worse team so it was always a challenge and so i, I could always like play a role in um in making it like a fair game so, like, I know it's kind of a random thought. Was that just because you're the best player? Or? <laughs> uh, no, of course not. <laughs> um, but, I, yeah, I mean, from my memory, I was, I was a great player at all things. But uh, talk to any of my schoolmates, I'm sure it would be a different story. <laughs> yeah, that sounds very democratic method of sort of uh, negotiating what sport to play in the playground. I remember in high school, it was always just touch footy or tackle rugby. Yeah. Um, nothing else. And you'd have the two captains and then, like, the people yeah. that weren't the best would always get picked to last. Yeah, pretty simple. And maybe sort of touching um, on that sort of narrative. So you really like sport from a young age. Um, and at, in your university years, you ended up playing a bit for the Brumbies. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, listen, I did. I trained, um, I trained with the Brumbies for many years. I was in their development squad um, following high school. I spent 12 months after school in the UK and played for the Gloucester Academy, which is one of the, um, one of the premier yep. league sides in the UK and came back and was drafted into the Brumbies training squad, the Brumby Runners, um, which is like the feeder team for the, for the professional squad. Um, it probably speaks volumes of my rugby career that I only had one game for the actual Brumbies it's squad. <laughs> so it wasn't like a highly successful professional career, um, but I did play with a lot of really impressive players um, over the years and um, was invested a lot in that side of my life. And I guess particularly, um, you know, from mid-teens to, to mid-20s, probably that 10-year period, um, being an athlete, being a rugby player, um, did form a big part of my identity and did soak up a lot of my time a lot of, and a lot of my energy. So it was uh, a big part of who I was. Mm. And, and before we move on to talking about things outside of sport, what were some of the, maybe the key lessons you learned from being in the really high-level um, sort of professional-grade rugby? Yeah, um, a lot of things. Uh, I guess playing... Uh, you know, elite sport 
teaches you a lot about discipline and teaches a lot about purpose. Um, you know, I know you guys like getting vulnerable on your podcasts and we might as well dive straight in. Uh, one, one of the biggest lessons about playing sport is that you really only get what you put in. Um, and, and obviously what I mean by that is it's those who are fully committed to um, self-improvement and who are really strategic about how they use their time and how they invest in themselves and the team that I think get the most out of it. Mm. Um, and I mean that both in a personal sense uh, in the sense that it's a highly competitive field, whichever sport you happen to be playing. And if you don't, um, if you don't have discipline in your training and in your diet and in, in what you do on the weekends, then it's not likely to pay off. But additionally, um, on like a, on a teamwork, on like a, on a personal level, you get so much more from these experiences when you fully invest in team culture, when you fully invest in those around you, and when you see it as more of like an individual pursuit, um, because that's like, I mean, at the end of the day, like who really cares if you played elite sport or if you're professional, whatever, um, what you really take away with it is like the friendships and the, and the bonds and the, and the memories of um, the teams that you played with. So um, I, I, I think, I mean, that was certainly a massive lesson. You always look back and wish you'd done a few things differently. Um, but probably the, the biggest lesson is um, wishing to have invested a little more um, into everything, into the culture, into the personal discipline and making the most out of the opportunity that you have while you have it. Yeah, I think we feel that very strongly as well. Yeah, um, Adam and I both did a bit of sport in high school and I think a lot of those lessons do very much carry on. Massively. And so, Harry, tell us how a young man that just graduated from ANU, started playing a bit of rugby, ended up founding a think tank <laughs> um, 10 or so years later. How, yeah. how did that narrative work out? Yeah, man. I don't know. How. It, it, we're covering a lot of time there, right? Um, <laughs> I guess. Um, and we can, you know, we can talk about significant events and... Um, uh, and and dig into it however you like um but i, I think in terms of a, a macro sense um or a meta sense I, I i things kind of take their course depending on the decisions you make on a daily basis um and and over the course of that time i don't think i had a clear vision right no one graduate i mean it's a pretty weird person who graduates from uni and thinks they want to start a think tank either they're completely like self-involved and think they've got something to, unique to add to the world give to the world or they're um, so intent on being a, um, a public commentator or a politician that, that it's just not funny. Um, so there was no grand plan to join a think tank, um, but over the course of that 10 years from, from uni to, to Blueprint, um, I worked in a number of roles in the public service. Initially, as you said, in the Attorney General's Department, working in a range of policy areas, um, then worked in politics after my master's. I, I, I worked for Julie Bishop, working in foreign policy, uh, I was her advisor on uh, foreign aid, on climate change, on South Asia, and on Africa policy within her portfolio. Um, and both the public service and then the politics um, were completely different experiences and taught me completely different things. Um, but one of the consistencies across both roles was, um, was better understanding how decisions are made and better understanding how the various actors in Canberra, uh, the various political actors, business community, business interests, um, public servants, and the, the public in general interact. And um, frankly, you know, I and many others identified the, the gap um, in, in the world of influence that politicians listen to. And it's that gap that, um, that we designed Blueprint to fill. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, how did I come about getting involved in a think tank. I think it was, um, you know, a decade of experience and uh, awareness of the, the gaps in the market and the, the genuine um, passion for the work and um, the desire to, to kind of solve the problem. Mm. That's very interesting to see that sort of macro formation of how that sort of big goal came about. And I'd love to dissect just some of the things that you did before the think tank. And something that pops out to me has been really interesting is that, as you said, you're Julie Bishop's um, foreign policy advisor, who's obviously a massive figure, was a massive figure in politics. Could you sort of shed some light on what that experience was like? Yeah, I mean, it was pretty eye-opening. Um, I was in my mid-20s um, when I started that role. I'd just come back from completing a two-year master's overseas. 
I was working at the time in the public service in the Attorney General's Department as a relatively junior officer. Uh, and um, the Abbott government won parliament. They won the 2013 election. Julie came in as a foreign minister. And of all the members of parliament and all the ministers uh, in the Liberal government, Julie was the one who I was always more ideologically aligned with and also who um, was clearly such an incredible individual. So I was kind of inspired not only by the opportunity to work with her, but also by the portfolio um, coming into um, the foreign ministry. It's a fascinating area of policy. I've got um, experience in, in foreign policy and, and um, my, my master's was in international development. So the chance to apply those skills um, was also very unique. Uh, so when I started in the office, it was a massive step up from having worked as a junior in the public service to working in kind of the, you know, the, the apex of power uh, in Australia and seeing how the deputy leader of the Liberal Party and the, the foreign minister engages and interacts and, and makes decisions. Um, uh, it was, the experience was daunting. Um, you know, you feel uh, you're, you're weighing in on, on policy that affects uh, millions of people, that affects a budget of $5 billion um, and has very real influence uh, over how things play out. Um, but also like an immense sense of purpose and excitement um, that keeps people coming back. I think, you know, uh, advising in government's one of those roles that is really intimidating and that tends to drain people really quickly because, because it's so challenging. Um, but it's the, the excitement that you're making a difference and that you're in a position to influence things that keeps people coming back. Um, so it was that like, over the course of four years, it was like, a, a constant cycle between adrenaline um, and stress and then the release after um, something's achieved and the, the sitting period's over and, and you get a break. Mm, that's really interesting. And I'm, I'm reading Obama's book at the moment. He talks a lot about his foreign policy advisors and that, how they shaped his policy kind of coming into fruition. So just a quick question before we move on. What um, skills make a good foreign policy advisor in your opinion? Uh, so foreign policy specifically, um, well, any advisor, um, I think the, the values should um, come before the skills. And, and, you know, in many respects, I think what makes a good advisor is the genuine interest in the public interest, um, the, the, um, the commitment to providing um, advice that is based on the evidence and that has a clear idea of um, who is who it's designed to benefit. Um, the skills, um, judgment, uh, a keen sense of judgment, everything that happens in Parliament House has a um, magnifying glass cast over it. Ministers are really um, rightfully concerned about the public image and, and have um, a really high bar to maintain. So your sense of judgment and your eye for detail uh, are utmost. Um, communication skills, um, both written and also being able to understand stakeholders, uh, advisors are anyone working with politicians has, has have to understand the electorate um, they're working with and they're serving and being able to um, listen intently to a whole range of stakeholders you'd never imagine, imagine yourself being put in front of and being able to both convey the government's key messages and, and, um, and vision, but also um, listen and be able to convey back to the boss um, what key stakeholders are saying is, is really important. Mm, interesting. There's a lot of very important qualitative skills there. Mm. Um, like we sort of talk a lot about people in consulting or banking and we hear like these sort of hard skills like Excel and PowerPoint, but I think there's a lot more sort of juicy and important skills from yeah. what you just mentioned. It's also refreshing hearing about people that are having a massive influence. I'm not trying to downplay yeah. the influence of bankers or consultants, but this is just something so out of the realm of yeah. what we're usually covering. Just having a view of wanting to help the public. Yeah. Because I guess that's what the sort of public sector and politics is all about. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly should be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, after that, you had a bunch of different experiences and eventually you made your way um, to the think tank uh, and starting it. So how did you get there again? And then sort of what was the rest of that journey like? Yeah, so I um, I had, I think at the back of my mind, identified the, the need for Blueprint Institute over the course of my public service and political career, but the idea was never really 
made tangible, right? I, I mean, if you'd spoken to me two, two years ago, um, I think I'd be surprised at where I am now and at what I've created with, you know, a bunch of other people. Um, but the idea really crystallised at the end of 2019 and started 2020. Uh, I had been, I'd taken like a bit of a career break. Um, I'd left a role. Uh, I was working with a young, young entrepreneur in Sydney, um, working in an organisation called the Sam Prince Group. Uh, working on government relations and um, on strategy across a range of different organisations. And that was like a whole new learning experience after politics. Um, but having the career break in 2019, travelling to Brazil, working with a good friend on a, on a, um, on a development program, um, I came back to Australia wondering how I would apply myself to something meaningful. And I guess... The, you know, the conversation we started with, um, kind of trivial one about sport and about fairness has kind of run through my career. I do really care about, um, about justice, uh, hence working for the Attorney General's Department, and came back and wondered how um, my skills could be applied to Australia's policy context and the, that kind of grey area between politics and policy. And I got with it got together with a bunch of mates who had also worked for the coalition over the years and who are really passionate about the need for thought leadership, um, thought leadership based broadly on center right principles. So um, a, a respect for free markets, but acknowledging that they're not sufficient. Um, you know, there's, as any economist would tell you, there's market failures. We need to account for where the environment uh, in particular and where the vulnerable, um, how they're affected by, by policy and, and, um, and markets. And I guess at the time, um, Australia was struggling with the bushfires, right? Like it was our, um, it was the most dramatic bushfire season on record. Um, was it 3 billion animals died? Um, we were all choking uh, in majors in Melbourne and Sydney at the very least, we're choking in Canberra, the worst air quality in the world. Um, it like deeply affected myself and, and those around me. And there was a sense that the government wasn't properly taking account of the role that climate change has played um, in Australia's bushfires. And um, frankly, is not preparing Australia for the future by taking responsible climate action that will both decarbonize the economy, but also make the necessary um, uh, create necessary incentives to allow private investment to flow to renewable power, you know, to the industries that are going to power this country for the century to come and not the century behind. So this all kind of culminated with me and a couple of mates saying, well, stuff is, we know what influence other think tanks have in Canberra and with political parties. And frankly, frankly, they're not always particularly constructive. Um, we think a new voice can make like a ma massive difference. And um, by the way, climate is one of multiple areas where we need to have a, um, a more honest discussion and where we need to look at the evidence and when, where we need to encourage politicians to um, come to solutions that are genuinely in the national interest. Yeah, uh, yeah fascinating. And it seems like it's obviously um, focusing on very important stuff. And I guess a challenge I'd sort of like to pose to you is um, Australia has a big sort of landscape of think tanks. We've got like the McHale Institute, Lowy, Aspie, a lot of different ones. Why did you think what, or more so, what was it in the values and vision of Blueprint Institute that you thought could really stand them against all the others? Yeah, I mean, there is, there is and there isn't uh, a bunch of think tanks in Australia. Like if you compare us to the US in particular, but then um, the UK, France, Germany, actually the ecosystem is incredibly shallow. Yeah. Um, you might have like a thousand think tanks in, in DC, um, whereas in Australia, you could, you could literally name them on two hands, right? So there's not a hell of a lot of thought leadership going on. And, and in general, applying, um, applying the logic of the market, uh, competition is very good for ideas as it is for goods and services. So any additional player in the space, theoretically, should rise the, 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 um, the value of others around them, right? And, and create competition and, um, and encourage all players to be a little bit more sharper and a little bit more strategic about what they're producing. But specifically, like two of the, two of the think tanks you mentioned, Lowy 
Institute focuses exclusively on, um, on regionalism and internationalism, on foreign policy. ASPE's a defense think, think tank, right? So the ones that first come to mind are specifically focused at defense and foreign policy. Um, others in the space do a fantastic job, right? There, there's, other, there's other think tanks that could do good things, but I think the combination of our value set which is quite centrist, it's, it's centre-right, it's focusing on markets, but it's recognising their shortcomings. That space isn't coveted by, by any think tank. Um, and there are, there are think tanks that have disproportionate influence on um, political culture, on the public service, on how people think about problems and how identities are formed. And um, I think you need a richer contest of those values and the ideas that, that flow from them. Well, you sold that to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, Harry, so Blueprint, one of the papers that me and Adam read was Powering the Next Boom, um, Priorities for Energy Reform in the Coming Decade. And you mentioned climate change was a big kind of motivation for you in starting Blueprint and getting some kind of um, discussion that wasn't, would you say that discussion that kind of separates itself from the political nature of climate change and actually says these are the facts and this is how we build a more resilient Australia. If you could quickly sketch kind of blueprints findings on climate change and me and Adam may jump in and fill in anything we found interesting and then maybe we can um, have some discussion about that. Yeah, I mean, that'd be great. Um, let's I guess the first point, Sashin, is um, you said we, we try and distance the findings from politics, and I think that's really important. Um, we've got really great networks in Canberra, and there's a lot of former politicians that sit on our board and our strategic council. And um, it's, it's an interesting signal, um, not so much to our political affiliation, but to our values. Uh, and the point is there's a, there's a value set that drives our work, and that is infused in everything we do. Um, but it's distinct from the politics. And I think that's really important because that if you can kind of chart a straight course and people around you, um, the audience understands where you're going, where, where you're going, where you're coming from and believes that you are true to those values, then your, your research and your findings are going to resonate much more clearly with them um, as opposed to if you, um, you know, you win, you're a wind vane on, on issues and you kind of go with the flow and respond to. And I think um, that comes across when you read your work. Yeah. Like I, I think it very much comes across. Yeah. So um, that, that I mean that's the underlying um, that's the underlying values behind it. Uh, we have first looked at Australia's um, climate and energy policy um, as a whole, and and our first paper, Powering the Next Boom, which was la launched last October, sets to frame the discussion in terms of. Uh, the history of Australia's climate policy, a range of different attempts to implement economy-wide solutions, which any economist will tell you, uh, you want to set a price on carbon, you want to apply it economy-wide, and you want to let the market respond to the price signals, right? That's how you account for negative externalities. There's been a range of, of, of efforts on both sides of politics to do that, but frankly, the issue has been vexed and completely um, stuffed by politics over the past couple of decades. So that, that was the starting point. Then we looked at what, what, what value, how do you apply solutions most efficiently to decarbonize the economy? And we sought to set um, a broad framework for which our future papers will respond. So Power of the Next Boom was an introduction. And then we're gonna set, um, we're gonna release a series of papers over the course of the next 12 months that respond to this negative externality that's been vexed by politics, but which is tractable and which we're seeing um, the international community now account for, right? Our first paper, we had, we had um, consolidated around the point that it was inevitable and that Australia would commit to net zero 2050, which is where the, the international discussion's headed. In the weeks before we launched the paper, China of all countries committed to net zero by 2060, but they're on, you know, they're at least on the path and Japan and Korea committed to net zero 2050. Yeah. Um, this follows you know, commitments by the European Union, by the UK and by a range of other nations. So the momentum's like absolutely headed in one direction. Since we released that first paper, we've had um, obviously the election of Joe Biden, right? Which is in and of itself would be a game changer in the climate discussion, but merely adds 
um, momentum and weight to what was already occurring overseas. So a lot of our work's informed by, um, by the international context, and it's thinking about, uh, I mean, broadly you might say two things. One, strategically, what does Australia need to do in order to um, maintain our strategic position, to be respected by other nations, to be seen as responsible, um, specifically in our region, for Pacific Island nations, for small island developing states, what can we do to respond to their existential threats and concerns around climate change? How can Australia maintain that um, regional leadership if we don't commit to a responsible um, climate and energy policy, right? So that's the framing. America just adds weight to that. Um, Biden's come in with $2 trillion US um, commitment on green stimulus to decarbonize the American economy. He's talking about penalizing imports at the border that don't, that um, for which carbon doesn't, isn't priced. So Australian exports to the US that have carbon intensive manufacturing would actually be penalized. The Europeans are already on track to do this and there's conversations happening in the UK around the same thing. Um, so Biden adds weight to all this. There's the strategic concerns of how do we partner well with the, with the US? How do we maintain our, um, our special friendship with America? But then secondly, there's very real economic consequences. So, with, you know, obviously carbon border adjustments and tariffs and prices would impact us significantly. The demand for our coal exports over the years will decline. Um, thermal coal, much faster than metallurgical coal. Thermal coal goes into power generation. Uh, countries will, will slowly reduce that. Metallurgical coal, which goes into industrial inputs for like steel um, and other products, that demand's gonna be longer. But we still need to consider um, how international players are affecting our domestic economic interests. And on the positive side, how do, we, how do we put ourselves forward, right? How do we make the necessary investments to ensure that Australian technologies are developed and that capture the opportunities um, that are gonna be immense in the future? Yeah, and I think that's something that every single one of our audience will be so passionate yeah. about. And I just wanna say that was a fantastic overview as well. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe a way we can separate this out is where Australia is currently and where we need to go and what kind of um, reforms that you guys came up with um, in your analysis of ways in which we can kind of um, do better in the future. So I think what I found really interesting was that I was kind of shocked with Australia's position, um, frankly, when I read the paper. So at the current, you said that at the current rate, temperature will increase by 4.3 degrees by um, 2100. Um, if we don't commit to net zero very soon and net zero will limit this to 1.5 degrees. So inevitably it's going to be um, rising by at least 1.5 degrees by 2100. My question to you was that why are, are our commitments um, in Australia quite low incomparable to our peers when a lot of them, when in a lot of cases we're a more developed country? And, and something I just want to add to that as well is that we saw in the paper the cost of um, solar energy, it's decreased by 10 times since 2009. And so we are seeing these decreased costs, but there's still been so much, um, so, so many hurdles for us to overcome. So I guess we're really interested in why we haven't been able to advance as much. Yeah, it, 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 almost, it almost seems like a no brainer to a certain Absolutely. extent. Like I, I know there's a lot of political complexities, but just that the econ economic opportunities of clean tech and obviously, the, obviously um, the fires, the current pandemic, um, you guys really said that this can be a catalyst for change, but why, why are we lagging so far behind the rest of the world? Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's really complicated, right? And I think um, we are trying to figure that out and we are trying to explain that as clearly as possible to the electorate so that as, as a whole, we can have a more open public discussion about where we're sitting and what, um, what's in the national interests to, to, to adopt. So, I mean, it's highly historical. Um, a lot of it stems from the negotiation of the Montreal Protocol in like 1997. Um, so like, what was that, 25 years ago? Uh, countries negotiate their, their own emissions reductions based on their national interest. And Australia was in a strong position at the time um, to do so. And I, I don't think our emissions targets have historically been um, appalling by any means. I think they've been middle of the ground, um, but we, we were, were able to negotiate what could be considered um, 
like a, a strong favourable position for Australia. That's put us in good stead, which um, we have uh, we have achieved. We the the Kyoto period um, governed climate uh, emissions reductions prior to the current Paris Agreement, and we actually exceeded um, what we were what we set out to do during the Kyoto period, which then sparked this discussion of if we had excess carbon emissions in that period, can we apply them now? And and is it like a credit that we can draw down on? Uh, and that's like another completely vexed um, political conversation. That's a kind of aside from the technical solutions. So there are like, it's a highly historical discussion. Um, and I would say following those, those initial negotiations, the, the politics has been vexed. And I would say whatever good intent there was initially and whatever success we have achieved um, over the decades has been significantly eroded by um, the politics of it, by the establishing of economy-wide schemes, the scrapping of them, um, multiple elections that have been won or lost on um, parties um, being perceived to be too soft or too ambitious on climate uh, at the expense of our, our economy. Um, and really, Blueprint Institute is um, is trying to remedy that, right? Like we're trying to engage in that public discussion to say, hold on, um, we can be ambitious on climate without sacrificing the economy. You don't have to have these, the extremes of the debate say one or the other, right? The, the extreme left have historically been far too focused on global public good, on the environment, and have not thought about regional communities who rely on, on coal power plants, for example. Uh, the right has been far too focused purely on, on exports and the economy without considering that um, there's you know, emissions, there's um, flaws with our market, and we need to account for that as well. So we're trying to find that middle ground by having really open conversation based on, based on the evidence. Mm, interesting. Was, was there a period in which um, this whole discussion became more politicised? Because I know in America, I think about 15 to 20 years ago, it wasn't even a political issue as such. I think both sides of the bench agreed on it more so than they do now. Um, was there that kind of period in Australia where it became more, uh, it became a right versus left issue rather than a, this is the science, how can we bring everyone together and move towards a more kind of sustainable future for Australia? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think we actually did follow the states in many respects. Um, amazingly, with what Joe Biden's committed to doing and the fact that climate is a major pillar of, you know, this election. Um, amazingly, the US is actually more polarised than Australia. So the challenges here are not as great as the US, um, but yet we continue not to, um, to, to reflect their leadership. Um, I, so following the US, uh, a number of really powerful um, business interests became engaged with climate change in the 80s and 90s. They funded some right-wing libertarian think tanks that invested heavily, heavily in climate denialism mm. um, and in, you know, contesting the science that then had effect. And was that based on business motives to fund those kind oh, of? Um, that's certainly, yeah, I mean, isn't it always? Yeah, um, yeah I, I, would, I would think. Um, um, and that like flowed direct, I mean, lobbyists, the money that goes to, um, to political parties, it definitely colored how the debate was had in the States. Um, and I don't think Australia has been as, um, I think a lot of the similar themes apply in Australia. So Harry, something that really interested me in the last paper, essentially the cost of renewables especially solar and wind have gone down dramatically in the past 10 years. Um, but in, on the investment side, we haven't seen this huge um, increase. So I was wondering, what are the things that have held us back from that? And are they sort of purely political motives? Yeah, so um, I'll say first, I'm not like the expert on, on investments. So um, take it with a grain of salt, but you will yeah. find some of the overarching themes in our work. Uh, it has certainly not been only political. Um, the renewables coming down the cost curve has reduced uh, has reduced the, the price of electricity and therefore the profit margins of um, producers. Therefore, the incentive to invest is decreased. So, um, you know, in that case, uh, you would think there's a role for government in recognising the benefits of um, getting 
more power into the grid in the right form um, and, and coordinating um, that to happen. One of the issues we've seen is that there hasn't been that federal coordination. Um, each state and territory in Australia is committed to net zero 2050 and has their own strategy for how their territory, their, um, their jurisdiction is going to achieve it. So you've got eight well, nine, including the federal government, nine climate and energy policies in this country, but um, coordination through the national cabinet, but no consolidated strategy. And um, we're starting to see the, the negative effects of that. Um, we've seen renewables come into the grid at such a pace that coal plants haven't been able to properly anticipate um, the returns on their, um, their, their plants and are being pushed out of the grid artificially or pushed out of the grid before they had anticipated, which isn't being, um, which the government is also not ready for. So you're seeing like, you're seeing a vacuum of long-term strategy and there's a whole range of agencies that do their part, um, but they're also trying to raise awareness about the challenges and the fact that there's not um, a single coordinated strategy to, um, to green our grid. So on your last point about the coal plant's sort of demise because of renewables, um, I found that really interesting in the paper because there were some graphs that showed the spike of the extreme electricity prices um, when, a coal, when a coal plant got, um, got essentially dismissed. And then I saw the government had to introduce some um, different regulations saying that you have to give sort of 42 months um, notice before coal plant shut down. So I guess that gives a lot more impetus for renewables as well. Um, sort of just trying to take away all the volatility in the um, energy markets, and just have more sort of sustainable prices. Sustainable prices are, um, are directed by long-term strategy. And if you speak to anyone in the energy sector, um, they're crying out for, uh, for certainty. They're, they're crying out for, for government to be clear about what the policy is, how we plan to decarbonise, and what the implications will be for them, and then you'll see um, far more money flow into the flow into this, um, the grid, and for prices to be um, to be better coordinated uh, in the long term. Yeah, I think it's important to underline that a theme of the paper that I really thought stood out to a lot of things we've been talking on the podcast is that social impact in this case, environment. Um, doing something good for the environment and financial returns aren't mutually exclusive. It seems to say that like you were alluding to a lot of the greatest companies in the future will be clean energy companies. And uh, again, we're seeing a lot of momentum, especially in the States with a lot of funds actually taking into account climate change risk as a significant risk factor for their investments. So I think that's something we need to keep on underlying until the public consensus changes that clean energy isn't a neg like it's not a financially unfeasible thing. Um, and that's the amazing thing about the conversation now, right? Like it's the business community leading on this. Whereas two decades ago, it was government trying to create policy and the business community telling them to, to sort off. You now have the Australian industry group. You've got the business, the, the business council of Australia, the BCA, you've got a range of industry groups telling government to, to coordinate strategy, to be clear about where we're headed and then to allow businesses to, to deal with it. Yeah, so it, it seems like all the incentives, bar the, the political incentives, are in the right place. Um, and it makes me a bit more optimistic about the future. Mm. Um, Harry, a question I had was that net zero emissions by 2050, that, that refers to the overall balance of greenhouse gases um, that a country is emitting, right? So there's two ways you can achieve that. You could cut down your emissions a lot, or you could... Um, take emissions out of the atmosphere at a quicker rate, which I think we're seeing some kind of elementary technology about. Where, when a country says that it's committing to net zero, what side is it usually on? Is it taking emissions out or is it producing less? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's well and truly on the side of producing less. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, the technologies are super exciting um, and we do need to invest and ensure that, um, ensure that our um, bets are hedged and that whatever technology um, leads on capture and storage on um, sucking carbon in from, from, um, from the air is um, sufficiently invested in, but it's, um, it's the majority of it is in reducing your carbon footprint. Mm. 
Yeah, that was a very interesting discussion of climate change. Um, I feel like we sort of encapsulated everything there. And what are some of the other things that Blueprint Institute is really passionate about, or even you personally, because you've had this sort of big climate emphasis. What else um, sort of for the vision of Australia do you care about? Yeah, so one of the things we're considering at the moment is how rapidly um, the international context is changing. Um, you know, uh, the, the last four years has been an absolute whirlwind. Um, I think Australia has done um, better than to be expected under the Trump administration. And, um, you know, we're in a fortunate position um, during that time, but uh, the world is changing really fast and um, the Biden administration will be uh, a completely different kettle of fish. So I think we need to have the conversation about um, who, who we are as a nation, where we sit in the world. Um, we need to think more strategically about um, our relationship with China and with the States and our leadership in the region. We need to think about the strength of our political system because actually comparatively, it's quite amazing, right? Like if you look at what happened, what's been happening in the States, I think we're really lucky and fortunate as a country to have what we have. So the discussions around our political institutions, around liberal democracy itself, and um, not taking for granted the success that Australia has, um, has achieved and enjoyed over the past three decades, um, our, our success politically, um, the strength of our economy, and what we can do to ensure um, both are sustained. Now, I think we've been pretty lazy. You know, we, we have been a lucky country. We've been lucky to rely on um, the exports of, um, of minerals. Um, and we do need to think more critically about, um, about key tenets of the economy, about productivity, and about how, what role government has in working with business to, um, to train the workforce, to set um, regulations um, that will stimulate investment um, and see new, indus new industries prosper in the future. Um, apart from that, we're really interested in childcare, we're interested in tax reform, uh, and there's a range of other stuff we'll be taking on over the course of 2021. Yeah, one of your first points was that Australia sort of needs to take a look at who we are as a nation. Um, are you sort of alluding to you're interested in Australia becoming a republic? <laughs> that's a that's a bit of a leap there, Adam. Um, uh, my personal, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think eventually uh, that is um, that's inevitable. I think uh, when the current um, Queen's reign is over, the, the conversation will be a lot more tangible for a lot of Australians. Um, I mean, republic is one thing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of areas which that touches on yeah i guess i'm saying that because me and a lot of our friends were quite passionate about the idea of australia becoming a republic i think for a lot of our generation we don't have too much understanding or sort of emotional connection with the uk and the queen and so we see it as like a big part of the sort of vision of australia to the future so where do you sit on um on the the day that australia day sits on changing the date yeah like, well that's a hard um com yeah a difficult conversation I think so like my personal views I think we should have a day where people can celebrate um, I think we're a great nation obviously there's a lot of um, horrible things in our history and I think that you've we should be respectful for the people that um, we've sort of been horrible to and I guess our date um, signifies when a lot of the boats came into Sydney Harbour um, and for some people that's that's obviously going to be extremely tough and traumatic to deal with I think the idea of having a day where everybody can um, enjoy it and not feel sort of trauma would be great. Saying that, again, if we did change a day, I do wonder whether that would actually help. Um, but yeah, I think it's a conversation that, well, we are having and that should be continued to be had. But I, I, eventually, I think it will be something that will be changed. Yeah, I'm very much the same as Adam. I think that ideally we should be reforming the day immediately um but i think honestly on the balance of my considerations i'd rather us abolish today completely than have it as the 26th into perpetuity like i don't think that we should be celebrating the 26th period what are your thoughts on it yeah so like i i actually just think one important starting point is having these conversations i think australia is um 
I think we can be a bit resistant, a bit resistant to change and resistant to, to um, having um, these kind of fundamental conversations about our values and, and where we're headed as a nation, where, we, where we've come from. Um, I think both, both of you answered the question better than a lot of um, thought leaders in the space. Um, politicians can be caught pretty off guard by this one or say things that are inflammatory or, or intentionally divisive. And that I, certainly isn't the way forward. Uh, and I, I really do think we need to have a serious conversation about changing the date, um, considering the, the strengths, uh, the potential benefits to, to so many Australians in doing so. I guess like the way I sort of think about this is like, what is there to lose? And I don't think there is a lot to lose. Um, sure, there might be some sort of economic costs for changing a day. I doubt it would be that high. Um, but I think there's a fair bit to gain as well. Awesome. Yeah, no, no, 100%. Uh, and I think we've been having this discussion before. And I think something that I'm personally considering is that the protests that are on tomorrow while, while we're recording this are all about abolishing the day completely. So then there's also the consideration of when you sit on changing the date, do you attend the protests? Do you not? Um, what do you do? What do you do on the 26th um, at all? Like, is it like, do you feel guilty if you have a few beers with your friends or, you know, like, I think there's a lot of considerations when you're in that kind of, not, not halfway point, but in that kind of changing the date. And I think that amongst our friends, I think a lot of people feel quite strongly about changing the date, um, progressive youths, um, so to speak. But yeah, so I, I think it's an interesting one. I think that's an interesting point to finish up. Yeah, yeah. And something we tend to do at the end of our podcast, Harry, is that we do a quick fire round of questions um, just because we would love to know some of the things that have sort of influenced you along the way. Um, so are you okay for a bit of a quick fire round? Sure thing. Cool. So first question, um, try and answer these all in 30 seconds. What's one of your favorite books and why? Uh, so this is a bit of a lame one, but um, genuinely the book that I keep coming back to is uh, a book called The Power of Now um, by Eckhart Tolle. Oh, I can't do it now. <laughs> so I actually have now tattooed on my ankle because yeah. of that book. No way. Yeah. Show it. I can't, it's not going to come up on the Oh, thing. surely you're flexible. Uh, I'll, I'll see it. You might not be <laughs> yeah, able to see covering it. You're covering it, dude. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's on my ankle, though. Um, but yeah, no, me and Adam actually did a podcast and that was the one book we like talked a lot about with our favorite yeah. book. So love awesome. that. I didn't hear that one. I'll dig it out. Um, but yeah, completely agree with you. It's, it's a bit of a game changer. If you remind yourself of it, yeah. you know, of, of the, the importance of being present of being in the moment of, um, actually living your life rather than always stressing about the future or dwelling on the past. Yeah. Um, second quick fire question. What's one of your favorite podcasts and why? Is a trick question. <laughs> no, you can't answer ours. Um, I've been listening to a bunch of podcasts at the moment focused on the US. Uh, it's just like um, I can't tear my eyes or ears away from from um, from America at the moment. So New York Times, a podcast called The Argument that goes deep into um, current affairs and politics and is definitely worth a listen. Awesome. Third quickfire question, who's someone that you found inspirational um, and motivational during your career, but that you don't know personally? So, oh man. Um, so very symbolically and like aspirationally, it's like Nelson Mandela. Um, like I think the self-sacrifice, the humility, putting yourself um behind like the interests of others was just so central to who he, who he was and, and how he led his country. I think it's incredible. Um, more tangibly, I would say someone like David Pocock, who has been a great athlete and who has been the best, um, the best in their business for, for years, but also has a really strong social conscience and who has now is now dedicating himself to things outside of his domain. Um, so he's like really active in the environment and in the, the climate change space, which I find really admirable. I'm going to add a quick one in. Um, favorite US president? <laughs> oh, man. Um, Obama. <laughs> yeah. uh, last quick fire question. What's, your, what's one of your favorite hobbies? It can't be rugby. Yeah. <laughs> I don't play rugby. Um, I've lost too many brain cells playing rugby. <laughs> so. uh, 
Uh, favorite hobbies? Um, I play a lot of golf. I play a lot of board games. Carcassonne is a fun little, um, you build a little universe and compete for castles. Oh, that's uh, Definitely rate it. Yeah. I, something I've noticed lately, just as a thought, everybody like in their early 20s starts to get into board games when they're like 21 and 22. Like you stop sort of having all those big nights and you have more wholesome ones playing like Monopoly and poker. <laughs> I don't think that's everyone. Dude. Everybody I've talked to recently. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say everyone gets into golf and I was like, I was just- A lot of people I know get into golf. <laughs> that's just because you go to Sydney Uni. Yeah. Um, and Harry, we like to finish off by asking a question. Um, if you could leave our audience of 18 to 25 year old future leaders with one thing from your vast career, what do you think that would be? Oh man, um, <clears throat> big questions, eh? Uh, I think like knowing yourself is really important and it's not being like navel gazing or self-obsessed or narcissistic or possessed by it, but just noting what makes you tick and when you make major, major decisions in life, um, going back and reflecting on ones you've made previously and thinking about what governed that decision and whether or not it worked out. Um, you know, if, if you don't think strategically about your decisions, no one else is going to do it for you. And it's, um, I, I would think, I think most people kind of jump from one thing to the next without a coherent kind of um, strategy weaving it all together. I think that's absolutely great advice. Um, and I've really, really enjoyed this podcast, learned a lot and you've got a very fascinating story. Thank you. And we'll be linking um, Blueprint and yeah. the papers we reference. So I actually encourage everyone to read it because I think that a lot, of, a lot of people our age are pro-climate change reform. They understand on a surface level, but if you actually ask them a deeper question, well, this is me personally, if you ask me a deeper question about Australia's position, our history on it, I probably didn't know that much before reading that paper. So I think it's a great um, piece of writing. Um, amazing. Thank you both. I would... Um... I definitely encourage any listener who's interested to reach out to me personally on LinkedIn or on socials um, to check out our website. Uh, you can subscribe to our email distribution list. We're going to be really active. It's certainly our second year of operation. Um, we're really ambitious for this year. We want to produce a lot of good work, but we also want to host events and get people engaged. And we want to hear from young people. Um, a lot of our work is focused on solutions to problems that uh, respond to the interests of the next generation, not just the next election. Uh, so really welcome any feedback from your listeners. Yeah, and we'll chuck up any events on our podcast page as well. Absolutely. Um, so we can access them clearly. Yeah, right. thanks so much for that, Harry. Great, thanks, thanks guys.